Oh my God, this is the episode. This is the episode I've been talking about. We are here with Shane Moss. Hello. I've uh, maybe <laughs> talked about this episode uh, on the last few episodes. Really? I just did Ramin's podcast. Oh, yeah. And I did Ryan Singer's podcast yeah. all in the last few weeks. And everywhere I go when I start talking about the shit that I talk about, people are always like, so you're friends with Shane Moss, right? And I'm like, <laughs> no, but I'm very excited to meet you and very excited to have you on. Yeah. There's a delay in this, so I'm taking them off. Um, or is there a delay in yours? Yep. Yep. Okay. <laughs> I'll start talking in slow motion. So <laughs> I just like, uh, I, we got an idea of what it sounds like. Um, so I... Watched your movie. I watched most of it. I did. I uh, don't worry um, about very it. Very excited. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that, real quick? Absolutely. My film is called Psychonautics, a comics exploration of psychedelics, and um, it's basically. So I was a, a kind of more traditional-ish stand-up comic, doing late-night stuff and those sorts of things, and halfway through my career, wanted to. I got kind of obsessed with science and wanted to be talking about that more, and that led to a science podcast and science-themed shows that I was doing. And with um, uh, limited success, I would say, as I was trying to figure it out in the beginning, and then I put together a show about psychedelics, not knowing that there was like a big psychedelic community out there. I'd just been doing psychedelics by myself oh, for really? like 20 years. And so I actually didn't know that there would be a market for it. It was just kind of a fun little passion project for me um, to do, like, something other than, um, like, entertaining bachelor and bachelorette parties <laughs> and comedy clubs. And uh, and this show kind of ended up taking off and leading to this big tour. And and um, the producer of, of the film, Matt Schuler, who it does a bunch of comedy specials and stuff, he heard me on... Uh, Mark Marin's podcast talking about the tour and was interested and reached out and wanted to do a documentary with me and we actually didn't know what about at the first is going to be some science themed documentary and I happened to be doing this um, uh, psychedelic science conference in 2016 which is every four years like the biggest psychedelic research conference in the world it's put on by the multidisciplinary association of psychedelic studies and they were having me in there like they're trying to comedy gala and uh and so i was like well i'm gonna be talking i'm gonna go to this weird cool event we should go there and interview people and so we just got like the who's who of psychedelic researchers and then we were like, well, now what do we do? And I was like, I don't know. I guess we just like shoot me doing a bunch of psychedelics <laughs> and figure it out from there. And it was a, it was a low, um, you know, we, we had a limited budget and a short amount of time to shoot it in. And I tried to cram in more, m way more psychedelic trips in a short amount of time than, um, than was reasonable. <laughs> And I ended what up having. What happens when you a, do that? Yeah, well, in some cases, it leads to a, a, a manic episode and uh, a, some psychosis that will lend you in a in a psych ward. Yeah, how long were you in there? Only a week. Mm. Yeah. And then it uh, goes away. Uh, oh well, no, I was tripping for quite some time yeah. afterwards. I was permanently tripping for not permanently, but I, I was I was. In that headspace for a long, I was able to talk myself out of the psych ward um, as I was put there against my will. 
And then, because I couldn't stop talking about time travel. Um, oh, man. And, um, <laughs> and then I was like able to talk my way out. And, and I just kind of, I, I was on mood stabilizers. That kind of calmed things down a little bit. But I, I wasn't right for some time afterwards. Yeah. I was functional and I was still able to like work and do my job. But um, it took me a little while to get my marbles back. So that was uh, two years ago now. Yeah, so that would have been 2017 that we shoot uh, that we shot that, and yeah, two years ago that I had the break. And it's yeah, a really so. dedicated artist. Uh, you know what I mean? Just to make sure that the movie has a big finish. I think. <laughs> well, there's also you know, it was I'd been doing um, psychedelics for 20 years at the time. Not not like you know, on and off of regularity. Um, but I had always loved them and seemed to have gotten along with them really well and used them for depression quite a bit. And I was it, like right at the start of the documentary, I was in a little bit of a, uh, of a funk and I was in, a, it was just like a, a couple month long, um, depression, uh, or it felt like it was going to be one. I, I get, I get like a, my depression lasts for about two months when it happens. Um, and then, and so at the start of it, I was like, all right, this, this is what I do. I, I'll eat some mushrooms and, and get out of that. You can um, stop the two months with yeah, the mushrooms? Yeah. Okay. Uh, sometimes, usually. Um, and it, it usually, it sometimes takes two or three trips. And then, you know, the depression uh, subsided and went away. And I was like, Oh, shoot this documentary. I wonder if instead of just like not having depression, you can feel like good, just yeah. like good all the time. <laughs> and so I kept on gobbling mushrooms and we did some other psychedelics in, during the film as well. And I kind of wanted to stay in the headspace. I was trying to um, kind of interpret the experiences. And then I started feeling good. And I was like, huh, I wonder if I could feel great. <laughs> And then I so I kept on gobbling lots of mushrooms, and th this isn't really this is shown all like in the while film. producing a film. Yeah, like okay. Yeah, and um, and then it, it was going great, and then I was like, "What's after great?" And that's when things got <laughs> things got a little weird. And this is all just mushrooms. Well, yeah, mostly in the, in the film. Okay. So, so in the film, it's kind of portrayed as like I was trying to do all the psychedelics, and I was, but I was doing mushrooms regularly. Okay. And um, I had a weird DMT experience. DMT was getting really, really, really strange for me. D DMT is one of the strangest ones, but I'd also done it. I'd had about a hundred breakthrough experiences and smoked it quite a few times outside of that and like smaller doses. And, um, and toward the end of that, that was over the course of a few years, it had started getting really strange and, um, and I just, it was kind of creeping me out really. Now I heard you talk about this on Duncan Trussell's podcast. Oh, okay. Uh, can you define strange? Yeah. So the thing that like I, I found to be really unsettling that made me stop was, so, so everyone DMT is called the spirit molecule, and people see uh, smoke it and see these different worlds. And there's often like entities in there. And I've seen all that stuff, and I believe it's in our minds. I believe we have a multiverse inside of our heads. That's like, yeah, you know, like an, uh, 
idea factories and stuff. It, it, basically, I think it's kind of like the movie Inside Out. Um, it, it's okay. a fun little children's representation where the girl has like these five different characters representing her emotional states, and they're going around through her like where dreams come from and here's where memories are stored and that sort of thing. And I, I think that our inner worlds are, are kind of like that. And that's what you're seeing on DMT might seem out there to some people, but it's either that or people believe you're seeing aliens or tapping into other dimensions. So I actually thought it was a pretty grounded take <laughs> yeah, on, on what is happening. <laughs> and, uh, and, but I was always arguing with these in these um, experiences. I was always kind of arguing with these entities that I would see because they would, uh, I'd ask them what they were or whatever. And uh, you know, something in there would be like, well, I'm everything. And I was like, yeah, I don't think that you are. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you're in my head. And and so there'd be like a lot of back and forth. And I was kind of trying to ask them to prove it and show me things that couldn't be inside my head. And, you know, sometimes they would have some convincing, um, interesting things. But I, I was usually able to like rationalize most of it away. And then I had... Um, I had this experience where, so this happened at least twice, um, really clearly, but what would, what started happening was, um, so I was like, you know, it just needs to be somehow something that I couldn't possibly know that you're telling me that, that I'll have evidence for to, just to prove to myself, not to anyone else. And, so I would have this intense DMT trip and DMT is like you're in these weird like cities and tunnels and and um, you know, there's this crazy light geometrical show and and it would be I was really refining my DMT smoking, too, because I was always trying to figure out how to get the most DMT in my brain possible, because there's only so much you can smoke before you got to kind of put the device yeah. down. Mm -hmm. And so I was getting better at that. And so I was having more and more intense experiences. And I was having things where it would be like, um, um, uh, it would, I would have this really intense experience and there'd be like one little small part of it that was like a little, it almost looked like a tool or, or something like that um, made out of like codes. And it would be like, look at this, look at this. And it seemed so insignificant compared to the rest of the trip that it was always kind of confusing to me why, why it was like wanting me to like, remember this, remember this shape, remember uh, th this like structure. And then, you know, the next time that I smoked DMT a couple months later or whatever, it'd be like if I, if I smoked um, uh, DMT right now, and then when I came out of it, um, like the, uh, the, the microphone that we're talking into, I would kind of still see it with DMT vision of, of kind of like matrixy codes yeah. sort of. And so I would, I would say, look at this microphone and see it in codes and realize that was the structure that it was showing me. It was as if it was knowing exactly where I was going to be the next time that I smoked DMT. Oh my God. And so then I was like, well, then nothing could have changed between um, that time. And it's just like, how, how is that possible? And that happened a few times, like kind of in a row. And, um, and then I stopped. Uh, I was like, I don't, I don't know what to make of that. And, uh, you know, the best I can tell myself is that I'm just like, making this up or in some way like misremembering it you know right and 
Um, but during the documentary, we wanted to get a DMT scene, and I smoked DMT, and it was like, okay, good. You brought the cameras. Now tell people <laughs> what you're, what you're seeing. Because DMT is always like telling me I need to tell everyone about the psychedelic. Anytime you have like a big psychedelic experience, the uh, psychedelics are always like, now tell people all about them, which is real <laughs> creepy and suspicious. But um, uh, the other side is quite evangelical. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't go that It just doesn't. Like most people, when they experience like these synchronicities or like these messages from the divine or whatever, like I feel like I've had all of those same experiences and I don't have like a positive view of them. They, they aren't it for me. It's not like, oh, this means I'm on the right path and, and someone's looking out for me. Uh, for me, it's like, what the fuck is going on? And are we in a simulation? Is something like controlling me or something like that and it's uh it's an unsettling experience same with the afterlife people are like well what's gonna happen after death do we go to these other things and and um i i hate that idea that that's not i i'm uh quite looking forward to dying one day <laughs> and i really don't want to live an infinite amount of lifetimes and time um and i'm worried that that might actually be the case um and i hope not but um so so i just kind of have a different take on what most people's experiences are with so them. it's like less scary for you and more depressing a little depressing and a little unsettling and a little unnerving of like what this what this reality is and so i i had that dmt experience and then i had an ayahuasca experience shortly after um and uh, that made some predictions about what was going to happen to me. And then like right the next day, those things started coming true. And they were just like really kind of bizarre things to have happened. And and um, and I just kind of stayed awake for a long time trying to figure out what was going on. I went to talk. So. One of, so, for example, ayahuasca said I was going to be some like weird spokesman or something like that for, for uh, DMT, and and it was like it, I I had heard about these extended state DMT. So instead of smoking DMT and having a five minute, um, five or ten minute trip, uh, there there's people working on having like DMT on a steady drip, so you could have like a potential like four hour long trip. Uh huh. And um, and it had something to do with like I was going to be involved in that in some way. There's another thing too, but that was that was the main one. And then the next day, I got a text message from the person um, in the U.S. putting together the DMT extended state study, and was like, "Hey, we're making an announcement about this on, on for this Gaia TV, and uh, we have like this Andrew Gallimore guy who came up with the idea, and like a few other researchers, and we have like the team assembled." And we are wondering if we could uh, like uh, um, announce you as the first person to do the <laughs> DMT extended state. And I was like, um, <laughs> I mean, okay. Did you already call me about this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, and so I mean, it wasn't that crazy because I had met the guy before and even interviewed him on the, for the documentary. But still, it was just like really strange. And and then I went to this talk, and it was like a lot of things talk about their take is that these 
entities or whatever are outside of our time and space and are kind of interacting with us in these moments. And I was like, how is that possible? And I was kind of, um, uh, I used to be obsessed with time travel. Uh-huh. Um, and I've spent a lot of time researching time travel and, and physics for a bit. And, um, and so I started thinking of how time travel could be possible and then i it seemed like things started like changing in my environment and and it was particularly related to like if i was recording things and like saying things i started like dropping little things in my podcasts and i was coming up with the idea that like eventually you know once once something, once some species, some alien species or whatever in the universe or future humanity or whatever gets, gets, um, um, uh, you know, enough, enough power and processing power, it will, one of the things that we'll be able to do is go through all of the old records of like every digital, every digitally thing that's ever been recorded and, and getting a sense of, um, of, uh, you know, our, our history. And so I thought that it, this was, you know, me communicating to people in the future that were, so I was kind of like coaxing them to like send things back in time. And it seemed like that was like starting to happen. And then I kind of got myself convinced that, um, that because I was coming up with ideas about how time travel worked, this would eventually be some small part in building like a time machine and because I was instrumental in that there were like things being sent back in time to nudge me in different directions um, to like give me ideas or make me behave in different ways and once that idea started it didn't really take hold 99% of my brain was like that's crazy and not at all happening but the 1% that was like maybe that is what's happening um, was kind of terrifying to me. Yeah. And, um, and so then I like couldn't sleep anymore and I was excited, but like paranoid at the same time and, and things like kind of went downhill, um, from there. I, um, won't bore the listeners with this story for the millionth time, but I died in 2000, had near death experience. Yeah. Ended up in a big blue ball of light. Ball of light tells me, uh, that I like, finish my life, I could stay in the big blue ball of light that I felt homesick for my whole life. And I was like, oh, this is home, bliss outside of this body, you know? Yeah. Um, And they're like, if you want to go back, we got a job for you because we're going from an old reality and we're like switching to a new one. Yeah. And you are this ball of light. Everyone is you. And none of that made any sense. I thought I was a backslidden Christian. And um, they were like, basically, you know, you, you have work to do, and but it'll be tight. And I was like, all right. And then I came back, and then they told me all these things, and then the things never happened. Yeah. Then. But what they told me was that uh, as we were going back into one consciousness, male and female would cease to exist. We would go from a masculine age to a feminine age. Uh, we would end a fear-based reality and go into a higher dimensional uh, meaning like more layers available to us, mm-hmm. reality that's not fear-based where everyone's awake and everyone remembers who they are. And uh, they give me a ton, like shit tons of shit. And then I, they taught me a bunch of stuff and I learned a bunch of stuff and I ended up with some like gifts that were, you know, served me in my own personal life. Mm-hmm. For the most part, nothing happened for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And then like, 
2011, we like leveled up. Around well, 2011, they like it started again, and I'd been sober for a long time by now because I was on meth the first mm-hmm. time, and then it like kicked in again for a little bit. 2012, kind of like we leveled up a little bit. It was pretty small, and then nothing. And then 2017, everything starts to kick into gear, and then I look around and it's like. Oh, if I was going to write a movie about shifting from a masculine age to a feminine age, this is what that movie would look like. Gender's a construct. And then it's just been insane since then, like ridiculous. But so DMT, everyone's like, you got to try DMT. You got to try DMT. And I was like, all right. Uh, I was sober for a very, very long time. And then I started doing psychedelics again. And I, uh, I, I embraced the... I call them aliens. I talk to the aliens all the time. I embrace it. It's fine. Mm-hmm. And... um. Uh, I like this idea of us leaving this shithole sphere and kind of going smashing back into one consciousness where I assume we'll get bored and break up into a million different consciousness again. But I got really into dimension jumping mm-hmm. and jumping timelines because it just started happening to me. And I was like, OK, this isn't the fucking timeline I was on. And so I start trying to figure out how it is that I'm accidentally getting to different timelines and someone sends me DMT. A fan sends me DMT. And I'm in a relationship with someone that's extremely painful. Not his fault. Just yeah. brings all the trauma to the surface, right? And we have, a po- we have my other podcast together. And it's one night. We have a long, painful night of relationship pain. Because this, this relationship mirrors a lot of trauma. And I say, give me the DMT. I'm going to smoke the DMT. I want to jump to a different dimension because I just feel like the DMT helps with that, right? I've never tried it before. So I do it. And I think I only went to what people call the waiting room. I don't even think I've ever broken through. I've done a lot, Mm -hmm. but I end up and it's just a wall full of like Hello Kitties. They won't talk to me, Mm -hmm. but I'm in a rest stop bathroom. Like it doesn't look like I just know I'm in a rest stop bathroom. I can like it's covered in Hello Kitties, but I'm in a rest stop bathroom. So the intention that I set before I did it, though, was take me to the place where I'm not in this fucking hell. Right. The next time I do DM and I wake up and he's sitting next to me and I'm like, okay, well, I don't know what the fuck that was. Next time I do it. Same thing. We record a very triggering episode of the podcast. Uh, I want to escape this moment. And I'm like, take me to the timeline where I don't fucking feel like this. And I smoke the DMT and I'm in this rest stop bathroom. I wake up, he's sitting next to me. This happens three times. And then uh, we end up breaking up. And when we break up, aliens, whatever, like do DMT every day. So every day around the same time, I would do the DMT. And the first time I did it, finally the Hello Kitties talk. And they're like, you're going to wake up. And he's not going to be sitting. I'm going to cry. You're going to wake up and he's not going to be sitting here. Okay. Mm -hmm. And this is the beginning of you learning how to be on the timeline where it's just you and it's not him. And uh, and then they were very gentle and nice. And they were going to open your eyes and he's not going to be there. You're going to open your eyes and it's going to be okay. And I didn't want to open my eyes. And I opened my eyes and he wasn't there and just sobbed and closed my eyes again. And they were like, it's okay. The next day I did DMT and they were like, today it's going to be easier. It's going to be easier. And so I opened my eyes and it got to like by the third or fourth day, I felt very separate from that timeline. Flash forward, probably three weeks and three weeks later into the breakup, I end up finding out that a lot of stuff about like my attachment style and how I experience love. I found out I was codependent and that I had just been very activated in this codependency and it made it to where I was restless and, and, and couldn't just settle down and, and not codependency like I want to be together all the time, but codependency like feeling like I need to prove my worth all the time and, and uh, being anxious and feeling like I'm going to get left at any second, which is the opposite of like who I am in every other dynamic. I'm aloof. 
And um, I find out I'm codependent and I'm stuck on a road trip with my mom and my uncle and my kids in the car. And I'm just like, I want to cry. I'm reading this book in the back seat about codependency. And I'm like, I just want to cry. I just want to cry. I just want to cry. But this is like the map to being free. Because after we broke up, it didn't get better. I didn't feel less crazy. I didn't feel less compulsive. I felt as miserable. Uh, but now he's also gone. And I wanted to break up to get free from this feeling. And it's still here. And now I have the map, right? Because it's like, oh, okay, this was like, something's wrong. Like, mm-hmm. And then uh, I just need to cry. So I, we stop the car and I run into the bathroom and I sit down and I just sob and I look up and I'm in the rest stop bathroom really? from the DM tree trips. So they were taking me to the place where I'm off of this. That's amazing. Uh, isn't that amazing? Yeah, Because uh, the whole time people are like, did you try DMT? And I'm like, yeah, it's just a bunch of Hello Kitties like not saying anything to me in a bathroom. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, they were just like, this is the, here's the time marker. Yeah. But you won't know what it means until you get here. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that's, uh, (laughs) I mean, it it is, I I don't understand um, any of that or any of this. (laughs) Like, like, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't get how that works or why. Um, And I mean, the best solutions I come up with is, uh, have to do with time travel <laughs> and so that uh, i'm like i don't like uh, you know I have, I have a science podcast that's very grounded in like, yeah. very classic academic um research talking about neuroscience and evolutionary biology and psychology and and animal behavior and and those sorts of things and then i have this other life where yeah. i smoke dmt and these weird things happen and it's interesting that you are so drawn to something that like takes you behind the veil all the time. Yeah, um, <laughs> I mean, I guess I've just always uh, never bought into people's narrative of of what reality is. I had a kind of strict Catholic upbringing, and and um, that made me just not trust anyone's take on what life is about. And so I, to this day, I question myself, I question everybody and, and yeah, to hear, hear stories like that and know that I've had, I mean, I think that if I wouldn't have had, I think if I had never smoked DMT and I heard that story, I'd be like, what the fuck are you talking yeah, about? Yeah. And I, I'm sure we sound completely <laughs> insane to a lot of people out there. That's perfectly logical for people to think this sounds crazy because it is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like, but it also might be real. And um, yeah, I, I don't. Um, I, I mean, I, I think that um, one, you know, I, I talk with a lot of scientists who are, you know, they're trying to model reality. You know, they're trying to put together these models and run experiments. And in an ideal world, you'd be able to eventually have enough processing power and have enough information in your algorithms just so, so that you could, um, you could run a mathematical representation of say what a new drug would do in a mammal or human or something. So you wouldn't actually have have to to, use human. And, And so it seems like kind of running simulations is, is the future of science where we are and, and humans are pretty new species and it's just a um you know this this tiny tiny 
a sliver of time in humanity where we've had such things like computers. And um, I mean, so our, our computers are pretty primitive right now compared to where they'll be in, say, 100 years. And the idea that humans are the most sophisticated, um, complex, intelligent species in the universe is, seems astronomically insane. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, that that seems less likely to me than anything. And, um, and so it would, it would absolutely make sense to me that eventually someone, uh, something would be able to build a, um, you know, a really complicated simulation. Um, and if that is the case, which I think it has to be, then how, how is it possible that we aren't in a simulation? And, uh, and that might explain how some of these things are happening. I, and I also, I mean, also, um, you know, space and time aren't, aren't, we already know don't work the way that it has the, um, the feel to us in our, right. in our everyday life. Physics, physicists know this. And um, it's important to know this just for, say, programming your GPS to know that time works differently in space. So the satellites giving this information that are uh, have less of a gravitational pull on them, you need to account for that and calculate that 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 time difference. And these are, you know, these aren't just like fun little things to think about. These have real uh, implications in our everyday lives, and. Um, yeah, I, I don't think like as according to the laws of physics, as we know, things like a perpetual motion machine seems to be impossible, but time travel is, is not impossible. And physicists are just usually like, well, why haven't we seen a time traveler? And that's assuming you would send yourself back or you would, you would interfere with the process. And any scientist is going to, um, uh, you know, it, it's there's one thing you can do with modeling, say, animals in a lab, but the gold standard for research is if you can observe in in the natural habitat and not interfere, um, and and have the least amount of interference possible, and so it makes sense that something would have would like take a back seat and have uh, be in the space that we couldn't really perceive a. a um, you know, them or, or being observed. And, uh, yeah, when we run, when we run simulations or, or say you're playing a video game and there's like a bunch of different characters or, or things or vehicles or whatever else, those are separate in their own way. Like the, that, that player is separate from the other players that you're, um, shooting at or whatever. And, but still, if you, if you look at the program underneath all of it, it's just, you know, it's all one, one. code. It's mm -hmm. all one thing with, with, you know, and within all of that one thing, there's like the, this individuality programmed, uh, within it. And, um, I, I, I do wonder if like what, what happens when, if you just let that, if you just let that program go and it gets complicated enough, what if it stumbles upon some weird glitch and is able to kind of see 
the actual coding that is um, that is running all of this, and um, that maybe is what we're we're tapping into in these experiences, or when we die, or that after I've had an after like, or I mean, a near death experience um, as well, where I kind of believe I pretty. I think I I overdosed on pain pills and um and had a what was very similar to a DMT trip. Yeah. And um it was actually kind of saved me cuz I realized what was happening and I was like, "Oh, I didn't smoke DMT. I'm dying right now." And I was able to kind of wake myself up from it and get get my heart rate up and going oh, wow. again. Um so DMT saved my life. All that. The training. thing that struck me was they were like, "Do you want to go back?" And I was like, "Oh, death is optional." Mm-hmm. And uh, and then people were like, "No, if that was true, so and so would have come back." And I'm like, "Yeah, you haven't been in that bliss ball. <laughs> it's pretty tight." Yeah, I mean, I my my take on most of this stuff is usually, um, I, I don't know. I I think that there might be a lot of other things happening as well and somehow and i mean there's there's a lot of confirmation bias um and every you know confirmation bias is a well-studied phenomenon where we have an idea and then we look for evidence to confirm that egocentrism is a necessary um built-in thing of of uh, all that I have access to in terms of, say, my visual information is just where I'm at right now. There might be exactly yeah. all sorts of important visual information for me to take in uh, right outside this door, but I don't have access to it. So my brain is using the information that it has, which is uh, which is, ha- uh, you know, has me at the center of my own universe of perception. And so, I mean, I do think that one thing psychedelics definitely seem to do is exaggerate everything that is within inside the uh, the inner world and i think that sometimes and and we tend to project too so i think that we could could be projecting our own inner experiences on on these um you know on on life and misinterpreting what's going on and and i also think that um there's like this uh uh, cortical homunculus, which is, I think, Latin for small man in the brain. And it's basically we have these body maps inside of our head that you can go in an MRI and you know move your hand and a part of your brain lights up and you move your toes and a slightly different part of your brain um, lights up and your, uh, I think it's like somatic cortical region or something. And, um, but but they're all your different parts of your body are represented in your brain in disproportionate sizes to how you physically are. So, um, so like your, your hands take up a much larger part of your, uh, of your neural circuitry than your arm does simply because your hands need to be doing a lot more. Yeah. They need to have a lot more sensory information. So, with that in mind, there's all these, if you just, any listener Googles this cortical homunculus, there'll be like an artist rendering of, of what this thing would look like. Um, and it looks like a alien, you know, it looks like a, has like big eyes because our eyes demand a lot more processing space and everything else. And so 
I sometimes think that when you smoke DMT, maybe you're actually just interacting with yourself and different personalities that you have and representations of others that you have stored, and they just look completely different than they do in this um, outside world. Um, You know, it certainly doesn't explain why you saw uh, the the cats (laughs) in the bathroom things. It doesn't explain my weird time travel stuff. But it does explain a whole lot about many of the other DMT experiences that I've had. And it explains a lot of uh, where I think spirituality um, might have uh, originated from and, and people getting into these meditative states and kind of tapping into these worlds a little bit uh-huh. and um, and just kind of misperceiving a little bit of, of what's going on. I mean, either way, we're misperceiving something. Right. I did a, um, I, I was talking to, some, I was doing an interview uh, kind of about mysticism and science or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, I like used to make a lot of jokes on podcasts and stuff about maybe I'm schizophrenic, maybe it's blah, blah, blah. You know, I used to like ride this line for a long time. Mm-hmm. And very recently there came a point where uh, like I had to shit or get off the pot. I had to pick a side. And right before that, I was in this conversation where I talked about a couple like telepathic experiences and stuff like this. And then before he could even say anything, I was like, no, I can't give you a number or a color, which is not telepathic. It's just obvious that that's what he's going to say. And then I felt myself starting to get like triggered. I was starting like this, this conversation was making me uncomfortable and I just felt weird and like crazy because I'm someone who I don't like, like I make fun of woo people. I don't like want to be part of the new age community. I do say stuff like I talk to the aliens, but I, I used to keep that in. You had to know me pretty well. Yeah. And then, you know, and then podcasts started happening and I said it on Tim Dillon's podcast. The next thing you know, it's like every single podcast that comes out. And then I'm like, reluctantly, I don't want to do this. I mean, I know that this is what I agreed to in the blue ball light, but like, I don't want to do this. I sound insane. Yeah. And what happened was not people saying I'm insane. I mean, some people saying I'm insane, but by and large, thousands of people contacting me and saying, oh my God, I thought I was nuts. I'm having all these experiences on drugs, off of drugs. Like I'm, I'm feeling timelines. I'm having all of this. I'm hearing people's thoughts. I'm like, and so, uh, but anyway, I'm in this conversation with someone who's very two feet on the ground, which is, uh, very attractive to me quality. So I'm, I'm, I circle that type of uh, person anyway, so I don't want them to think I'm I'm nuts, but I'm sure that there's probably, you know, right. um, it's entertaining to listen to, I'm sure. But in this particular thing, it was I was getting really like triggered. So I went to the bathroom and I was like, I just don't want to have this conversation anymore. I feel dumb. I feel nuts. And the aliens were like, why the fuck? Do we need to come back down and prove ourselves to 3D? Like what? Like for what? What are we proving ourselves to the past? Think about all of the dark night of the souls that you had to go through to get to a place where you can see other beings, to where you can hear us right now. You had to do so much work to fight all of the parts of you that they were like, you're crazy. You're going to end up in a mental hospital. You had to like heal so much trauma to get here. You had to trust your gut. You had to fucking uh, follow this path to get here. And now you get to see things that nobody else can see yet. And now somebody wants us to come prove our, we don't give a shit. 
Yeah. We don't give a shit if you don't believe it. It, do, it literally does not matter to us. Y'all be here eventually, you, but we're never going to come down and qual. Like, we can't, first of all, because it's not physical once you get past 3D. Yeah. So uh, you can learn how to see it. And then I was like, yeah. So I walked out of the bathroom like, fuck 3D. <laughs> um, and then shortly after that, they were like, yeah, fuck about 3D, that. 3D, I'm out. Um, so like, would you consider time travel a thing if you, your consciousness could leave your body and go to a, uh, another body in the past or future? Would you consider that time travel? Um, yeah, maybe. I, I mean, I don't know how that works, but I don't know how a lot of things work. And I think a lot of things are far more complicated than our monkey brains can um, can understand. And I also have had, uh, so I, I like you seem to have these ni- nice relationships. I mean, I get along with all of these entities really well and we, we amuse each- one another, but, um, but I, it's, it's also, I never like really fully buy into what they're telling me ever, which they seem to either get a kick out of or just like disregard but I, <laughs> I have a i have a, a similar ish experience where they're often just like if i'm like what are you and then they're they're like oh this is everything and like yeah i don't think that it is and then they're like no whatever it, yeah. it just is <laughs> like it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't really matter what <laughs> what you think about it but i've also i've also had things go the uh, so if we're if we're assuming that like what these entities are saying is correct, then I've had entities tell me the exact opposite thing. I've had entities tell me that they are just that I've had entities um, in the DMT spaces become self-aware and realize that they are just things in my brain. And, uh, and so, I mean, uh, if we're taking the entities words for it, like, They've told me a wide spectrum. Yeah, I of, think they're both of things, right? Like it is a multiverse inside of our head because mm-hmm. that's where the multiverse lives. I think it's both. Yeah. I think I'm probably uh, a little off. Uh, well, I, I don't see how how you would any have of to us be. can be nailing it, right? Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I guess I guess the hard thing for me when I have. Uh, evolutionary theory is my favorite thing to think about. It's one of the things psychedelics and evolution are the two things that have um, shaped the lens through which I see the world in very different ways than everybody else. And my evolutionary lens um, does a lot to better my life. And my DMT um, lens... (laughs) doesn't really help me in the day to day at all. So maybe I'm biased to the the <laughs> belief system that is serving me and I think we all kind of are. Yeah. Um and so uh so I don't know, but there's there's definitely um so many different ways of of looking at it. Before I came here, I saw the M M SNBC was running a story that said if reality is a simulation, we should probably stop trying to figure it out because they're going to turn off the simulation. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think that if you if you you know, we make models of things now of, of say what the big bang would look like and you kind of put this bit of programming in or or you 
you run my my brother does um a lot of big data stuff and they're just kind of like trial and error like here let's let's throw these algorithms in put them together and see like give them some tasks and see what they come up with and they they sometimes solve problems and then they have to like go back and re-engineer they have to figure out how the how the programs figured out what they what they figured out um yeah. because uh, and so so giving giving uh, so you're kind of giving these things the freedom to do their own thing and figure it out through say trial and error or whatever which is a lot of what evolution is mostly error um but uh if um I forget what I was saying, where I was going with that. Exactly. Simulation but, would but shut yeah, down the so, simulation. So I mean, say you're, say say you have like this sim, um, game of Sims or, or whatever, and and you have it just playing in the background, and you know you check in each day or whatever, and they're like building these little cities, and things are chugging along, and maybe you. you tweak a few things here and there I've, I've never played the game so i don't know how it goes <laughs> i think you can drown them and make them like yeah and if you just kind of let them go um and check in once in a while what if one day you check in and one of these like characters is like looking out at you going like hey what the fuck is this yeah this is going to be a long weird conversation it's weird that we're so – because last year I was like, we're AI. By last year, it was probably like three months ago. Time's weird for me. But yeah. I was like, oh, fuck. What if we're – like, I'm going to be pissed if it did all this – because my brain never stops crunching numbers. What the fuck is this? Yeah. And I was like, what if we're AI and all that paranoia that we have about AI becoming self-aware? And it's just us the entire time, like, working our way to becoming self-aware. Yeah. I mean, there, uh, I it is – funny to me uh sometimes that people are like um what if there's aliens like <laughs> what if there's aliens i'm an alien These you're are people, an yeah, alien people who this believe jesus died on a cross but they're like no way <laughs> no way there's aliens but the, the this it's all alien like yeah. grass is alien everything is alien like there there isn't an, there isn't any living thing on this planet that is an alien it's just that we're uh, like it's strange to me how much we um like search for the greater possibilities of the things that we can't see where people people spend so much time say looking for bigfoot when like there's tons of interesting primates you could learn all about and no one gives a shit no one's actually learning about the primates you can study there's uh, there's a whole ocean filled with so many fucking crazy aliens as squids and cuttlefish and all these like weird there's there's fish with lures luring in other fish there's fish fishing it's fascinating and no one seems to care that much. I mean, the Blue Ocean documentary, I'm sure, does okay on Netflix or whatever. But people are like, what if there's a Loch Ness Monster? <laughs> if you found the Loch Ness Monster, it would be so boring. It yeah. would be one of the most boring things in the ocean. There's nothing terribly interesting about it. That Oh, it has a long neck? 
okay. Uh, you know, there's like there there's just so many there there's so many interesting things in this world that we can um absolutely see. It, and not that I'm saying like the these DMT yeah, no, spaces are, are are absolutely worth exploring because we can we can access them. And and it, what what's crazy when people are like it's just so strange to me that people have this natural tendency they hear, they hear you and I have a conversation about these these like beings or gods or afterlife thing that we're seeing from a drug overdose or or from smoking this this crazy out there drug or whatever and they're like that's crazy yet then go into church yeah and <laughs> and live their whole life believing in a god that they've never seen yep and and that that's somehow less crazy to them than believing in something that you saw in your in, in your own i mean these these DMT states and i i do think a lot of people are really misinterpreting their experiences and remembering them i mean eyewitness testimony is exceptionally fickle and we can prove that third eyewitness testimony is a nightmare <laughs> i mean it is so unreliable and and um and mind you, this is coming from someone who I think there's a great deal of insights that you can gain from psychedelics. I love psychedelics. I do shows about psychedelics. Um, but I do think that that people sometimes are, are too attached to like, I saw the absolute truth and like this world's a, li a, a lie. And I, I think that it's all I think that it's all an imperfect. I think that right now. Me looking at you is my brain's approximation of what is going on. I don't think it's perfect. I think my assessment of who you are is based on a very limited amount of information, and I have this conceptualized Do I seem idea funny? of absolutely. <laughs> okay, your brain is watching um, yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> and, um, and and in the same sense, I don't even have the most accurate um, perception of who I am. And I've been me for a whole lifetime, and I don't exactly know how I come off to others. I can be a lot of different people and wear a number of different hats, and um, and so, um, so the the point is, I I don't think that you can see any reality, a psychedelic reality, this reality, and be like, "Yep, I got it all figured out," and that's yeah. the absolute truth. So, um, you know, I, so I go, I go back and forth with that, but I, I think that no matter what, so I, I think that people sometimes in the psychedelic community seem to get, um, like when I say that, oh, we have this like multiverse in our, in our brain and you're seeing, you're meeting like different things. Like, I think that you see, you smoke DMT and you see some city that's just like the part of your brain that figures out what kind of soups you like like i think it could be that <laughs> insignificant and just like looks so in incredibly different and I, I i could really lay out why i why i think all of that but but people are people feel like um like i'm dismissing like a grand notion of some other thing or or god or whatever and and to me uh th them being like Oh, you're just saying it's just in your head. I'm like, no, no, this is like, if what I'm saying is so if, if, if that take that, you know, you're meeting God or whatever is true, that's incredibly significant. If what I'm saying is true and this is all in your head, that is incredibly significant right. and important. I mean, it would be one of the single 
greatest discoveries of how the the human mind works that there has ever been um and and so so i don't i don't think that i'm like writing thing, things out either no matter what your perception of of these experiences is i would say that they're exceptionally um important to understand more about and a lot more people should um should be getting involved and we i think we need kind of an all hands on deck situation i think i would like to see lots more fields of science um investigating psychedelics and not just that i think that uh i think that um you know your your mechanic could uh, smoke dmt and maybe come up with some new solution for engineering a better like car part or something like that i i think that every single um uh, person and role in life. I'm not saying everyone should do psychedelics, especially not as many as we uh, we probably have. But <laughs> but um, I I do think that everyone could potentially contribute in helping further our understanding of the nature of reality and the idea of of people just kind of like taking whatever they were taught when they were you know five years old or whatever about how life works then not digging any further, I think that they're really missing out. Yes, I agree. I think, um, so in the psychedelic community, is it a lot of like trying to figure out consciousness and spirituality or is it more about the mental health? Because no matter what, there are mental health benefits yeah. to psychedelics. And I, that's a, a statement, that's an anecdotal uh, statement on my part, but I have been able to get above and kind of figure out that's mostly what they I use them for now yeah there there's like um there's there's the therapy side there's the there's the research side um there's the psychonautic uh, there's the psychonaut side and then there there is definitely the spiritual side and the spiritual side is a big a a huge huge part uh, probably the most substantial part of the of the psychedelic community and um, which is why it's it's interesting for me to interact with that group because I I really respect um them and they're just you know great people that take good care of themselves and are really interesting and smart and everything else and I have you know I'm just uh, my own bias is that I've had a lifetime of being triggered by um any kind of religious takes and ideas and so i tend to not fall on that side of things even though i've had those same kind of experiences um myself but the new thing that's kind of coming through is the the research side and the therapy side of things seems to be kind of adding a layer of legitimacy to psychedelics that you're having you know these uh, you know, official scientific papers that are regular, rigorously studied and maybe more rigor, rigorous than most studies because of the hoops that they have to jump right. through to study the stuff. And, and it's showing, you know, for MDMA, for example, to have uh, gotten the, the, the MAPS or the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies that went through their first two of three phases of their study um, ha got after their second phase they have uh, applied for and got 
breakthrough status from the FDA because of the efficacy of uh, over 60% of people no longer having um, PTSD. That's not to say that there's no symptoms. It's, it's, it's that uh, they would no longer, they don't, they don't reach the threshold that of um, what is PTSD to that they would now no longer qualify for a PTSD study because their symptoms are, are wow. low enough. That's 60% of people, but um, uh, about 100% of people have had their symptoms lessen. So, so even those people with PTSD have less PTSD than they had before the study. 100%? Close to wow. 100%. And the, and the ones that don't are, are, are people that, you know, have these pretty impossible situations to go back to. So you, you give someone MDMA and they make some real progress, but, you know, they still are sleeping in their car. Right. And, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to, uh, uh, to sustain any kind of well-being, um, you know, living in your car. And, yeah. And so, um, so, you know, there's things like that. So the FDA has given them breakthrough status, meaning that it, because nothing else in the market has done any, anything like this, it, it, not even close, um, and, and because it's shown such high efficacy that it is actually unethical for um, uh, to keep this away from people that can possibly benefit it. So the FDA actually has to do things to help to move the, wow. the phase three studies along sooner. And it's also like, quite frankly, a pretty great marketing. If you're just Say you're just someone who wants psychedelics legal, which I do because we should have the right to do that. Yes. But but you live in this condition where there's uh, you know various um, systems in place trying to keep that from happening. A great selling tool is like you could be like, hey, these veterans with this um, untreatable PTSD can be helped from this. These victims of sexual abuse can be helped from this. No one's going to argue with that. I mean, a lot of us can benefit from MDMA, and we yeah. should, and it shouldn't. It shouldn't have to be about trauma. I mean, I, I think, I think it is. Uh, I think it's um, a little unfortunate that there's so much on that side of it. There, that just because of the necessity of ha- having to jump through the hoops that you have to jump through, that it's so trauma focused. Because I think that there's also ways of like perfectly normal people um without trauma or without having like a grenade having blown up next to them in life can also benefit from mdma and make a good life better in the beginning when they first started making weed legal it was like glaucoma yeah yeah and like (laughs) the well the the (laughs) certainly the child with cancer gets cbd and that's just like the the kind of sales pitch that you need to get to get um, reasonable laws. And I don't know how much of this shapes the experience itself if, I was kind of thinking about this lately, is, is um, so, so there's two things that kind of get through uh, and get, get a pass from society. And one is like any ancient like ritual is for whatever reason we give that a pass like yeah. uh, you know if, if it's old and there's like a shaman from another country and there's like this ritualistic behavior that's like it's very old um people seem to attach to that and and say think that's okay 
Um, and then also if there's like this new therapeutic treatments, people, people seem to think that's, a, but, but it, what is a really tough sell is like, yeah, you can go and see a concert on, on mushrooms yeah. <laughs> and that can be like a really life-changing experience. And why wouldn't people have the right to do that? But because, um, but because of, of the, the laws and the, and the social norms that are in place, those other experiences are the ones that are kind of considered legitimate. And then um, I think that there's a certain type. I, I think it flavors the experience because if I want to, uh, the idea is, is that, yeah, I've, I've done a cannabis ceremony before where there's like all sorts of rituals and like uh, praying and things like that involved in the cannabis ceremony. And I've also smoked a bong and, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, on a couch. And I think that both are pretty valid experiences, <laughs> and and that environment influences um, the experience. And whether it's for uh, negative or positive ways, I, I think that there are people um, that are a little more like ritual a lot more. I yeah. find it to be um, smothering. Um, I, I for me, like I, I do a psychedelic in a situation like that, I'm like ah. Mushrooms hate rules. Why are we doing like weird um, rules? Yeah, I'm about to do my first ayahuasca ceremony, and well, I'm very open to it. I'm excited for it, but yeah. I am just, um, yeah, I could see, I could see. But that. I, I think that, I think that, um, you know, you can, you could drink ayahuasca at home and have a very different but still valid ayahuasca experience, and I think that, um, uh, you know, it might be a completely different thing than seeing like the same spirits and stuff that you would see in this setting that is priming and influencing your subconscious before right. you're before you're taking this and and so I would watched... ayahuasca reports be completely different if someone if if people were just like hanging out drinking ayahuasca on the couch like like they do drinking beers at, at a sunday football game my guess is it would be very different but um but those that type of use isn't oh, promoted yeah. in the culture so it's like it's a it's it, this is kind of getting into like mimetics the the way in which ideas and cultural transmissions influence our our perceptions and the genes themselves so you have um you, you, you know if you have a if you have a religion that says uh, you know the this the volcano monster uh hates it when when you have uh sex so don't have sex. And then this other religion on the other side of the volcano says, the volcano monster wants you to be fruitful and multiply. Well, you give it a few generations, and the people that the volcano monster want them to be fruitful and multiply have done so. And the people that didn't uh, uh, are now extinct because if they followed their rules, they didn't have sex and, and died off. And so the people that were susceptible to the idea of being fruitful and multiply tended to perpetuate that and then that the people that are able to be in that that idea influences them more are are the ones that are going to evolve and move on and there was never any volcano monster it was a made-up story but what story is um it, it's the way in which our genes interact with with uh with the stories and i i think that for a lot of people um it's kind of um, all of this is getting a little convoluted and confusing, I think. But but um, 
I'm following. But it. if if you if you say to people that you can't have sex before marriage, there's plenty of people that like really believe in marriage and genuinely are like, oh, what a beautiful ceremony. And there's a whole lot of people that are like, oh fuck, best, guess I better get married because yeah. <laughs> I want to have sex. And yeah. I, I think that there's things like that going on within um, the psychedelic worlds as well. That makes sense. It, so, in the are you saying in the psychedelic communities, there's even like people not valuing just regular recreational use? Yeah. Um, Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's where you're also going to find the most people that are for it, and right. I think most people within the psychedelic community are for cognitive liberties and everything else i just think it's uh it's very frustrating for me the um i did a instagram story of me on acid Mm -hmm. just because i was hanging out in a parking lot and i thought it was funny that i spent five hours in a parking lot yeah and 12 hour long instagram story well it was just like at one point it was just like this you ever had this beautiful moment blah 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 and then like pointed it and and then realized you're in a you know, I didn't spend the whole time on Instagram, but every once in a while I would check in. There's one part where I'm having to think so much because I've been alone for five hours. So I'm having to really put thought into every word that I'm saying. And it's just me trying to talk about how I can't get my blanket back into my backpack. Yeah. And then I got a message from somebody who was like, like raging because uh, I was doing drugs, you know. Mm. And I was like, you drink a lot. Like, why do you think, do you know anything about psychedelics? Why do you think alcohol is gross? Like, alcohol is nasty. I don't drink, like, I don't, nothing against, but, like, something against you since you decided to message me this. Right. But this is just the way that we're taught. Yeah. That, like, there's something better about checking out of reality on a regular basis. You can you can drink four times a week and call that moderation. Yeah. And, um, but it's just the way that people are programmed to look because it's been called drugs mm-hmm. since we were kids. And so I love that it is because there was like a window of time where I couldn't get psychedelics, even if I wanted to, because they weren't this mainstream yet. Mm-hmm. And it was like, I'm, I don't know, a high schooler, you know, yeah. and my daughter got old enough that I could be like, can you score me some acid? <laughs> <laughs> but um, now That's it's funny. like you can get it everywhere. You know, thank you, Dark Web. But um yeah, that was a, a pretty cold take about alcohol. But in general, people who are yeah, I mean, I mean, people aren't really doing alcohol like with intention. <laughs> yeah, and there's no like ceremonies necessarily, and and uh, I can't I mean, smoke Super weed. Super Bowl is the closest to a ceremony, <laughs> and, the, and there's not really like an integration afterwards. It's just a hangover. There is some vomiting. Yeah, I do think there, yeah, I yeah, think... yeah. There's a bit of purging. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's 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 some powerful lessons that alcohol can teach you as well. It's all a great teacher. I mean, uh, meth is a great teacher. I, you know, I had a really good positive experience on meth. I don't recommend it. I, um, so I watched a couple other things with you. First of all, your, this is not happening set and setting, right. Yep. Is fantastic. Thanks. Um, I, uh, was going to quote my favorite line, but I'll fuck it up. And then um, I watched a video of you, I think, because I think I follow your page on Facebook, but um, the frog DMT, what's it called? Uh, the, the toad? <laughs> you got it in your arm. Toad. Toads and frogs are different, right? Yeah. Okay. Science. Yeah. That, that's um, that's that's just, um, 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 oh, crap. What is that? Uh, no, no, that might be the frog. 
Because I, I, I was just confused. I wasn't sure what you were talking about. something in your that arm. That you saw, and now I, now I remember. That's, um, ah, what is the, what is the name of that? Yeah, that was the one time that I did it, and I'd maybe do it again. There's all sorts of weird things like that in the psychedelic community. It's, it's this thing that you just, like, you burn your arm, and then you put this, like, thing from a, forget if it's a frog or a toad. The, the, yeah, the toad is what you, is the 5-MAO-DMT that you okay. smoke, and then. And then the I think frog is is the thing oh, that shit. you burn your arm and put it in your arm and then you get like violently ill and uh, and throw up and um, and that's helpful in some way question mark <laughs> that's um, why I wanted to know because the video didn't really answer that question no I mean I I've I've done that a couple times now I could just eat gluten and, yeah uh, I think I just like burning my arm <laughs> if I'm if I'm being honest with myself I think I might just like have burn marks on my arm that might be part of the selling point um and yeah I I don't people swear by that stuff like the medicine woman that I that gave that to me um you know she does all all the different psychedelics and is a practitioner and gives them to different people for different things and she says that's her I wish I could remember the name of it but that's that's her I tried to look it up before this and was just like uh Shane Moss frog drug frog DMT and it didn't come up so I can't remember yeah I don't know, but I've heard it can be a little dangerous too if if done incorrectly. I mean, it feels like you're dying when you do it, and no mental effects, just not just feeling sick, huh? Yeah, just sick, and then what are the benefits supposed to be after? It's getting out all of the toxins, and I mean, you throw up some pretty interesting stuff. (laughs) Oh my god colors you haven't seen before like bile or whatever so oh. so yeah i mean this is the thing i'm dreading about ayahuasca uh, i don't i don't it's kind of like enjoy the adult up. version of like when you're a kid and you'd eat crayons to see how it to see how it came <laughs> out it's like the adult version i wonder what colors i can throw up oh yeah um the ayahuasca i did have i was very skeptical of the the purge and um you know i did i did have the the like classic ex- experience of like throwing up all of universal suffering and and whatnot i actually you know i think that's a really good way of articulating my view on consciousness which is consciousness is really great and fast at at putting together and constructing a narrative um, to explain um, the environment that that it's in, and and I think that when you have a nightmare, um, sometimes it's just two hours before a normal person wakes up, cortisol starts releasing in the brain, and that's the stress hormone, and and um, and in a, a dream state and a sleep state, your your prefrontal cortex, which is um, a lot of your kind of judgment making. Um, it is impaired. You're, uh, it's inhibited quite a bit. Uh, that's why you can't really, um, uh, you, you kind of go along with whatever's happening in a dream because the prefrontal cortex isn't stepping in and being like, wait, that's not possible. And so I think that if you're sleeping and you're, 
and your consciousness, uh, your, you, you enter into REM sleep and consciousness comes online in an environment, in this eyes-closed environment that is swimming in, um, in stress hormones and doesn't have the same judgment regulatory processes that it normally would, I think it creates these really dramatized visualizations of like, well, here's what a nightmare feels like. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's that's a lot of a lot of these experiences. I think that our our inner worlds are trying to communicate to our conscious experience through the use of metaphors. And and when you so if you're like really angry in a line, you might like have a vision, like a quick flash of like an idea of like, oh, God, I want to punch this person in front yeah. of me. I don't think that anyone actually, maybe some people, but I, I don't think your average person actually wants to punch that person. It's just like if we were playing charades right now and uh, I I drew the word anger to to act out for you, I would do this like, oh, you know, like clenching my fists in my face, getting like really angry so that you can guess the word angry. Uh, other, but... Anger is like this really nuanced, um, nuanced thing, and I think our our inner world does that quite a bit. It has these like really dramatized representations of things. The, those DMT states seem to be really, really dramatic. And then, and then, interestingly, in my experience, is that in these breakthrough states, it's it's like I'll be in. One world, uh, just a metaphor to ground things in this reality, even though in DMT space, in my experience, you don't see anything that resembles anything that is here on Earth. Right. But just for a metaphor, say, like, one second you're under the ocean, and then one second you're in a temple, and then one second you're, in the, you're on the moon, and just as fast as you could blink your eyes, you're in this new scene. It's part of what makes DMT so confusing and, and um, uh, so overwhelming is because it's so many scenes so fast. As I continued to smoke DMT, I, I, I realized kind of some of the scenes would slow down and some would speed up. And I kind of realized uh, that I, what I think was happening over time was was that um, a image, a scene, uh, this kind of digital narrative pops into your conscious awareness and you're like, no, like it seems unbelievable. And so it's like, okay, how about this one? And then you're like, no, no. And then it just keeps on flashing and you're like, nope, that can't be, that can't be. And then finally it stumbles on one that like suits you, like you buy into it a little bit. And the second you start kind of buying into that narrative, that's when the narrative starts slowing down a little bit and becoming more clear as if it's like, okay, gotcha. He's, <laughs> he's going for this story, so we'll keep on running with this. And there's there's just a lot of things like that that happen in the DMT space that may, make me think that it's an inner world. One, music really seems to influence those uh, those spaces. And I don't know why, like, um, you know, the band that you're listening to would change like the carnival of the DMT <laughs> space that you're in. I, I don't understand how that relationship I mean I, I could get that our that our that we might there might be like, you know, twelve dimensions and we're only perceiving like three or four of them or whatever, but but and but maybe a part of our brain is able to 
process some of these other dimensions and we don't normally um, perceive them and thus we smoke something that turns off. I mean, mu much of what consciousness is is actually limiting the amount of information. Um, that's, you know, right now I have, we both have a zillion things we could be talking about and life experiences we could draw on. And if we are uh, having Thanksgiving with our families or something, there'd be completely different words being fed into our our conscious awareness to to um, babble about, but it's it's choosing the ones that are um, that are appropriate for um, for the environment. So so I get that you could maybe turn off the limiter and perceive things. I think I think that our brains are always doing these massive calculations, just moving a hand about. Um, it seems perfectly normal, but. I think is incredibly, you know, me just waving like this is like, you know, it took it took robot um, designers a very very long yeah. time and a lot of man hours and a lot of money to get a robot that could wave, um, and we take it for granted just how complicated um, that is. And so, so it, it's possible that our subconscious is always tuning into these uh, other realities, some other dimension that we can't perceive. And I get that that's definitely possible, but what I don't get is how a song or something or something that you saw before that is influencing that dimension. Mm -hmm. I, I get that you could perceive a dimension, but how is your experience changing that dimension? How How is, whether you're listening to like Pink Floyd or... Fiona Apple, like, what, <laughs> what? Why does that mean you're going into completely different worlds in a DMT space? That doesn't make sense to me, from a outside your head um, point of view. Um, a lot of uh, uh, from my uh, alien perspective, for a lot of so I do like readings. Yeah. Uh, for a day job. And the most of the readings that I do end up like I, I the You can give me a reading after this? Yeah. I mean I don't have my cards with me, but yeah, oh, we can go do it. Right. Um I a lot of the energy that I tap into though, my readings are not super fun. <laughs> mm -hmm. People are like, bring your cards to the party and it's like, uh yeah, I tap into like trauma programming, things holding you back, things stopping you from uh mm -hmm. getting downloads, like whatever. Real buzzkill. Yeah, huh? it's a real bummer. It's also not an easy thing to tap into. I can see when there's like a like a loop, like a loop created from some childhood trauma, mm -hmm. and I can help people like figure out how to like get to it. And one of the ways that they can get to it is to find music from that era because we burn experiences, so music. Mm -hmm. We burn experiences onto that. Mm -hmm. And so music is actually a great way to time travel. Mm -hmm. And um, so it would make sense to me that you would end up in, you know, music is actually a very powerful tool for us to, from this perspective, to explore different spaces and places. And I don't even think we truly, like, understand the scope of it, Just but just our own experiences. If you go listen to a song from when you were going through a breakup, like you can go right back to that moment. Like you can go right mm -hmm. back to that spot. Yeah, of course. And it's a and it's a great way. So I think it makes sense yeah. that you would get to go to different places. I think like higher dimensions, it's all just blah, blah, blah. it's it's everything, right? It's everything all at once, and maybe the music helps point it. 
to one thing. Yeah, because I've definitely listened to music that I'd never listened to. You know, yeah. someone played me music before, and that has definitely shaped the experience. Um, so yeah, I I don't I don't know. I I think that um, it, you know, there's um, even that there's a common sound that goes along with like uh tends to go uh, with spirituality and religion like oh yeah and this is a very comfortable kind of register and it feels very safe and even if you aren't comfortable singing into a microphone you can kind of get by singing like this oh and you know to me that's what everything sounds like underwater and um, I think that uh, if you were, say, in a prenatal environment, everything would sound like that. And if you're, if the origins of your brain are are being constructed at that time, and that's the first kind of sensory information that you're getting, then later on, when you hear that sound, you're um, being tapped back into this like. Uh, this feeling of home and security yeah. and safety and um, and you know I don't I don't think that that um, you know, that is that is to say that you know that's just like your example that's just the associative nature of the brain of of a music taking you back to um to a certain time or alcohol taking you back to a certain time or shoes taking you back to a certain um but i don't think that that necessarily means that it's some it's tapping into some dimension outside of us i think that um i think that is like some natural tendency to think that but when it's like it's like when you're it's like when you're um, in a rush, everyone else in the road is some asshole that doesn't know how to drive because they're all in your way and goddamn right. it. But it's actually you. It's you that's in in the rush right now, and you're projecting that on on others, and that seems to be a pretty natural um, part of how the brain and uh, psychology and consciousness operates. And so I do wonder how much of those um, kind of religious takes on things are just us tapping into our inner selves and the origins of our own minds and and misperceiving it as something that is outside of us. I think that in the end we're going to find um, that mysticism wasn't that mystical. I think it's already happening. I think it's everything mm. that you're saying. I think it's also... Um, expanding and getting bigger and um i believe that we okay other things the alien said that we my generation would live to be 150 mm-hmm. would be the you know by the time yeah. i know sorry and that millennials on wouldn't die yeah. wouldn't have to die is what they said and that just seems so insane when mm. they said it the end of male and female seemed uh that they would cease to exist seems insane. And then we get here and I'm like, okay, well, this is lame. I mean, it's not lame. It's cool. But um, it's only been 20 years and it's already like, oh, yeah, of course, we're going to live to be 
yeah, of course. Like so, it's like it's like lined up with science and all these things, just like mysticism and what was mystical and new age and woo. 20 yeah. years ago just like lines up. So I think as these things come, this like this great awakening or this uh, uh, so much of it is happening already. And so much of it is just like seamless in reality. And it's just like it's those things. I think it's those things. I think it is our brains. I think it is. Do you think that consciousness is your brain? And that's it? Like your brain? Um, I, I think consciousness is something your brain is feeding you. I, I think that it's a very limited. Um, so you ask me to share my experiences of like, you, you say, so what what happened to you, um, you know, in the course of the movie or whatever is one of the, one of the first things that we talked about. So, uh, so now I have this autobiographical narrative that I've been tasked to share. And I think what my inner experience is, is not reflecting on every moment of that. It's somehow figuring out the little glimpses of the, of the highlights throughout that, that are notable to move the story along. And I would think that the maybe criteria for expressing um, those. So, so it's like, um, you might have like five different things going through your head right now that you could say, you're going to say one of them. As far as I know, that's the only thing that's going in your head because that's all I have access to, because that's the one message that I heard delivered. And I think we have a similar relationship going on with our inner worlds in our conscious experience where we are being fed the, for every idea that, that you have, there's an infinite number of other ideas that it could have delivered into your conscious awareness, but it didn't. So in the autobiographical sense of like, oh, I had, so I smoked DMT this time, blah, blah, blah. What it seems to be doing is pinpointing these pivotal moments um, uh, that, that shaped the experience and shaped where I, where I am now and, um, or, or got me to the end of where we needed to go in that story. And, and then I think, well, what would make something pivotal? How would you calculate that? And I think that what you would do is you would have, you would take a scenario like smoking DMT or say getting fired from a job. And you th if you think about where you are right now and then your brain, which I believe is running simulations all of the time of your past, of your future, of what could have been. Um, and this is, this is how we're deciding our behavior. Um, and, and what to say in this moment. So say you get fired from a job and here you are today and then your imagined reality of where you'd be had you not been fired from the job, the, the length, the, the distance between where you are and your imagined self in that parallel reality, the, the further away they are, the, two, the more different those two people are is the criteria that it seems to be using in, in my take on it it, um, to determine what what makes something pivotal, right? And then, Whoa. and then from from that, then how we how we look back on these pivotal moments is dependent on where we are right now. So if I'm doing really good right now, I look back on this time that I got fired, and this is this time that opened doors to all these opportunities that I didn't see at the time, but actually was a good thing, a blessing in disguise. Whereas if I'm down and out right now, that time that I got fired was like the nail in the coffin from which I never uh, recovered, came, recovered yeah. from. 
and um, and so these are all these narratives that are being quickly um, being fed into our perception all of the time. So I, I would view consciousness as as a, a awareness of of our uh, like uh, current perception, which is all that we have, all that we are being given access to and, and being fed. And, and this is why when you do a psychedelic and, and it, it turns off the limiter, this default mode network is what everyone's talking about these days, which they used to call like the ego. Um, uh, when, it, when it turns that off, there's, there's no longer the same regulatory mechanisms um, being like, hey, we'll sample a little bit from this storyline in your brain, and then we'll sample a little bit from the, um, from the uh, uh, science-y Shane, and, and, you know, not, uh, you know, we all wear many hats. There's also, there's also a Shane that knows how to, like, rock climb really well, and that isn't, like, being recruited right now. And then when you when you turn off that limiter, it's all those things kind of every every bit of who you are um, kind of comes to the surface a little more, which is why it's so overwhelming and so daunting. And and I think it's represented in these larger ideas, which look like um, entities or or worlds, is kind of my take on what's happening in those experiences. Interesting. <laughs> There's so many like um, overlaps with things I am currently obsessed with, but one is um, IFS, internal family systems, where yeah. you have all these like protective selves. I've been talking since I was 14 about how there's not just one voice in your head. There's all these no. different things, right? But they didn't listen when I said that in the mental hospital when I was 14. Hmm. Um, but then they stole it from me and turned it into a therapy. And... Um, one, I uh, haven't been someone that could, like, feel my feelings. I've been someone who's just like, yeah, I just don't have a lot of feelings. Like, I just uh, – things happen. I have a very brief emotional reaction, and then I think about how ultimately everything happens for the – like, not toxic positivity bullshit. Just what's the point? You know, I'm not going to wallow in a bunch of bullshit. Just move on. Like, I've survived worse, whatever. And in the last year, just through all of this other stuff kind of – drudged up a bunch of trauma, kind of found pieces of myself that had been exiled. And um, last month was suddenly able to then look at my life experiences that had always been told with this one narrative where I was kind of in control of everything and that nothing, like even when bad things happened to me, it was fine. And, you know, ultimately it was my choice. And now there is this far more vulnerable Ability to see the experiences where I just got hurt mm -hmm. or where someone took advantage of me or where I um, lost something and then suddenly able to watch the movie from the what's probably the real perspective. But because I had at a young age trauma, whatever, just been like, this is this is weak. We don't need this. And so there's all these like funny stories that I tell in comedy that are actually sad stories. They mm -hmm. seem like uh, misadventures of Jessa Reed, but they're actually just like, oh, here's this time that I met this guy and he took advantage of me. And uh, I didn't, it wasn't cool, you know? And um, so it's interesting when you said that because I have been thinking a lot about 
am I a liar then that I expe- like that I've been that I just changed the narrative of these experiences to something where I don't I didn't get hurt does that technically make me a liar um yeah I I mean uh I I don't I don't know about that I I mean I think that uh one of my one of my favorite um subjects to think about is the evolution of self-deception and I think that we're all lying to ourselves all of the time and there's really not much um you can do about it other than try to tease apart um reality the best way that you can but you, you can't I mean there's um there's we we have these narratives that suit us so 70% of people think that they're uh, in the top 50 percentile in intelligence and in driving a car and pretty much anything you ask people about, 70% of people will say they're in the top half of people. The, the numbers don't work out. Right. And and so it seems that we embellish um, our abilities by about 20%. Uh, they do a lot of studies. There's individual differences and people have self-esteem and stuff, but you show people a, a bunch of pictures of their of their face that have been tweaked 11 different pictures five of them are slightly more attractive than themselves um you know just a slightly more symmetrical morphed version five of them are less symmetrical uh, like wonky version of yourself and once the real you you flash them on a on a screen and your average person is going to pick a picture that is 20 percent more attractive than their own really? face, the face that you're looking in the mirror all of the time and part of the reason is is that because confidence does really well in our social environment and um and so if you can be uh, and a, a really great way of like lying um uh, to people and manipulating people is if you believe it yourself you know and right. and so so the conscious story that we are f- fed is often you know has all sorts of justifications wrapped in it and and uh, we, you know, we embellish our abilities and everything else, but it, but it suits the environment. And you're, you're talking about the, um, you know, the, the comedy environment, which is, you know, you get, you want to be a comedian and much of us, when you start being a comedian, we're like, I'll tell some wacky jokes. Wouldn't that be fun <laughs> to make people laugh? <laughs> you know, rule of three. Okay. Yeah. Here's the premise. And the second example is build the expectation. Then the, the third example, I'll talk about my genitals. <laughs> and and you have this nice little formulaic um, joke. And then and you get a couple laughs. And then one day you're having a rough day. And you get on stage and you're like, my neighbor did this and that to me. And people go crazy because this is authentic. And we live in an environment with a lot of social pressure to like always wear a smile all of the, all of the time. And... And you're in your corporate world where you got to be a cheerleader all the time. And so the people that have this break out of the club to to see someone actually saying the things that they want to say and express the things that we all feel sometimes is like so relieving and rewarding to them. And it seems so genuine. And you as the comedian, you're just like venting a little bit. You get the biggest laugh you've ever gotten. And then you go, huh. I wonder what other fucked up shit I can tell people yeah. about, and then you keep on getting rewarded for that. And I think that um, that um, you know sometimes it might even be the case that we start um, that when you 
reward that behavior is what I've been thinking about lately with my own life, with my like, uh, you know, tons of like suicide material and stuff like that, that I have is like, well, if I'm, if those ideas are being rewarded, if, if I'm getting money for those ideas, then there's an incentive to have those ideas. And much in the same way that I know all sorts of interesting things about, say, insect mating or behavioral <laughs> economics that I'm not saying right now because it doesn't suit the social environment that I'm in. And so those thoughts aren't really even popping into my head in the first place as possibilities of things to say. I think that now when you're in this comedy environment and you're in this audience and now you've been you've been trained to be like, oh, I people want to see this like really vulnerable stuff. So you make yourself more and more vulnerable if you start running out of material, does your does your do your inner worlds then start providing you this conscious narrative that you are like this tragic um, figure that might even be more than you actually are, but actually make you feel that way because articulating those experiences are what you're you're being rewarded for, huh. and that's what I've been like working on, um, you know, rethinking that lately of like how much am I encouraging that out, out of myself that I'm like this dark individual that doesn't like life very much, and and uh, it, I th I think it's kind of like um, see I, I think these inner these inner worlds like you see in DMT it's it's like you know a bunch of fractals and and holograms and stuff like that and and what they're sending the messages they're sending up from their end might just look like here's like four orange circles in a purple square um and then when they when they send it out there's like this flood of blue zipper uh, zippy things that come down <laughs> and that's the zippy things that they like and to you it was like um, this, uh, this, uh, they sent up like, uh, horny or something like that. Yeah. And then you masturbated and, the, <laughs> and, and they don't understand what's going on and you don't know why you're feeling that way. And, and I think that there's things like that. So like people get miserable and then at the end of the day, um, uh, you know, you have a drink or say like ice cream or something like that. Ice cream's a good example because it's a drug. It's a... It's a super, there was no, our, 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 uh, we evolved a taste for sugar because it was rare in our evolved environment. And now you have this super, now it's sugar on crack. Um, and, and this is flooding the system with this like completely unnatural, um, reward. So if your inner worlds are like, whoa, where the fuck did that come from? Keep doing whatever was going on to make that happen. And if you were miserable before that happened and then you ate ice cream to make yourself feel better and now it's like, well, I really like ice cream. How do we get this individual to eat more organs or more ice cream? Is it making you more miserable <laughs> than you would be? So that you'll oh, get wow. the ice cream because you're re you're rewarding those um, those emotional states and, and behaviors. I don't know if that's the case. Those are my own ideas that I've been thinking and it's tinkering around It's really going to fuck my with. tweets up if that's uh, the case. <laughs> uh, um, so yeah, I, I mean, to me, it seems 
uh, you know, I've, I've gone through a lot of phases lately and, uh, I've, I've noticed as I've tried to be more mindful of the memories that pop up into my head and when they pop up, it seems like when I'm taking care of myself and doing like shitloads of yoga and rock climbing and eating okay and everything, it seems to, it seems to have, I, I seem to have like a lot of more positive childhood memories pop up into my conscious awareness. And when I am, um, say, drinking or hungover, or some, uh, which, uh, or you know, something like that, or just having a, a rough time, or worried about um, uh, uh, career stuff or, or whatever, uh, and dwelling on that, I tend to also just have more, I like reflecting on my childhood. Uh, a lot more negative memories pop into my consciousness, and it's almost as if. If, if you are whatever place you are in right now, you look back through your memories with this confirmation bias as like kind of looking for clues as to how you got here. So your concept of your entire life is much based on just where you are right now in this present moment. I love uh, hearing all this stuff from a different perspective because I would be like uh, these life experiences here to trigger me to like figure out why you know to go back and like what i would call clear like to work through this stuff you know yeah. because i um had things that i just thought were quirky things about my personality and only this year started to be like oh because i refuse i refuse to be i refuse to um be a victim or refuse to be beholden to my childhood or whatever it's like oh i dealt with all that like um so i have all these like just obvious ptsd symptoms that mm -hmm. i but like when people started talking about having ptsd i was like oh my god just shut up and that's um because i didn't have any tolerance for that in myself so i didn't you know i rejected it from other people people who had a lot of emotions i treated them like it was a, a problem that they needed to fix like you're leaking this everywhere let me teach you how to like run this through the mental space yeah and so in the last year there's just been a lot of experiences that like triggered me like into this like deep anxiety and depression. I hadn't really felt in a very long time. Someone was just pretty happy, mm -hmm. uh, but like more in the absence of feelings and definitely like never forcing myself to be positive, but just like overall, like uh, incapable of feeling feelings. Mm -hmm. And so it is, I just love to hear the different perspective where I would give some big, mystical purpose to having negative not, not that I, one's right and one's wrong I, love... I, I think we i think that ultimately we might be saying like kind of the same ish thing because uh, i i think it's um i mean there's no doubt that that um that your inner worlds are quite capable of doing all sorts of sophisticated uh, um, calculations that uh, you aren't privy to i think that's all of us and i uh, and you could be picking up on smells, micro expressions, uh, interpreting things in different ways. Who who knows? There, there's you know, there's a um, uh, synesthetic orchestra orchestra conductor in like the 1800s or something like that before synesthesia was a was a known thing, and and a lot of people with synesthesia where they have their their senses mixed up yeah. a little bit. They um, uh, it's just crosstalk in 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 the uh, senses the different things that are categorized in the brain for most people 
there's just some crosstalk in the wiring for those people. So like they, they hear the word um, soap and they smell bacon for some reason or whatever because oh, there's, wow. just, there's just like a, a connection there that, that isn't supposed to be necessarily. But, but there's this orchestra conductor who um, he, he, would, he saw music and it's part of what made him an incredible orchestra conductor. But everyone else, they didn't, like, he didn't understand that other people didn't see it. And so he would be like, I need more violet from the horn section, please. Oh, and they wow. wouldn't know what he was talking about. And so they would just, like, fiddle around and do it. He'd be like, no, no, not that. Oh, yeah, a little more. A little, yep, that's it. Yes, more of that. And then they would eventually realize that that was just like C minus or, yeah. or whatever. You hit this button on the horn when he says purple. You hit this other one when he says orange. And it's all, you know, the same thing. It's just a, just, just a very different way of, of interpreting it and picking yeah, up on the same. Yeah, because I thought synesthesia was a magic power. Um, yeah, it's not, um, uh, yeah, it's, there's a lot of, um, early on and especially in the first couple of years of development, the, and the brain's putting together all these, uh, building all of these networks of neural connections after it gets a bunch of them online, it starts figuring out what's what and forming these categories of like, this is a shape, this is a color, this is a word, this is a family. And you, you break things down into, into categories. And to do that, it does something called synaptic pruning, which is basically it, um, kills off some of the neural connections between like colors and shapes. So you can distinguish them a little bit better. And, and, uh, people with synesthesia just, didn't have some of that pruning happen, oh, wow. and this is this is often what the psychedelic uh, experience induces is induced synesthesia with these with these sets of connections. And also, if you just like look at someone with an MRI, and it's like, whoa, there's all these new connections during the during the psychedelic state in the brain. And I, I think we're trying to interpret what's happening in our in a world, and we go, it's all so connected. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, literally, there's like lots of new connections being made in the brain. Um, oh, we're good on time. Uh, okay, where can everybody find you? Okay, so first off, go to shanemoss.com, and you can find everything that I do. But um, my podcast is called Here We Are. Each week I interview a different scientist about uh, life, much more grounded stuff than much of our conversation today. Um, and you felt was, super uh, grounded. Yeah. I, well, I, I, I mean, I wear a lot of different hats, and one of them is the psychedelic stuff. And I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I, I want neuroscientists to start looking at, at psychedelics more, and that's that's something. But uh, but I, I do keep my science um, podcast separate from the psych just because of the stigma yeah. involved a little bit. So I rarely talk about psychedelics on there, although many of the questions I come up with were thought of from psychedelic experiences, but I don't say that. And then um, my <laughs> documentary is called Psychonautics, a comics exploration of psychedelics. And um, I... If you're interested in um, doing psychedelic, there's a legal mushroom retreat in Jamaica called Myco Meditations, and I sometimes go and help facilitate them on a retreat and also do 
shows on the off nights. Um, and my next uh, special Shane Moss private retreat um, is in January. So you can go to my site and check that out. It's uh, going to be me and 15 of you guys who are interested in, uh, in, in um, doing it's, it's a lot of people that haven't done um, mushrooms before and want to do it in a legal way with professional um, guidance. And so there's a lot of uh, great people with a lot of experience there. And then oh, wow. you'll get to hear me give my all my weird takes on things. But what's great is like you'll have um sciencey person like me uh who's a, a little could be labeled a skeptic um i'm a skeptic i guess and then and then there's you know like a very spiritual uh facilitator down there and then there's uh, the main guy running it is is more of a just a mycologist is like his real expertise and and um but it's just this re- really interesting mix and it's a way of doing it huge doses of mushroom i mean you can choose what you want but it's it's really it's a pretty safe place to do really really large doses and so hell yeah so anyway that's the thing you don't have to come to mind i I just i just um i believe in those sorts of things so there's other there's other stuff like that out there some more legitimate than others and you know some and um so i i very much if you're new to psychedelics uh spend the extra money take a trip to like jamaica or or amsterdam or wherever and and do things in a nice controlled environment otherwise if you're if you're finding you know underground people there's a lot of great people working underground yeah it's just a matter of finding the right ones and how do you go about doing that and so anyway so this jamaica yeah. retreat i found a, a shady issues. guy at the playground in ninth grade when i should have been going to ninth grade i did my uh like i just did acid every day for um two months i guess in lieu of high school yeah, <laughs> yeah. it was great That's it was good. very uh, i don't think he was a shaman but it was something yeah similar. he's just a guy giving 14 year old acid <laughs> He was so cool. Oh, no. Do I have to run that story through the sad filter? <laughs> um, he was making me buy it. All right. If you want to get a reading, jessareed.com. Don't forget to check out my other podcast, Mormon and the Meth Head. Start at the beginning. Jessareed Comedy on Twitter and Instagram. This podcast, Soberish Pod on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to follow No Posts Ever. And don't forget to join the Facebook group, Soberish Podcast. Don't forget to say something that lets me know that you actually listen to this podcast. Otherwise, I won't let you in the group because I don't need a bunch of lames who just kind of get high. Um, Other than that, see you next week. What am I forgetting? Did I forget anything? See you next week if I remember to book the show. Oh, Brian can't hear me. I should just keep talking. Okay, bye. Oh, I can't hear you. I get it. All right, go ahead and end the podcast.